Welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today is my conversation with Bernardo Castrup. Bernardo, uh, as we get into in the video or in the interview, he is a scientist and he is a philosopher. He's been involved in tech. He's worked at CERN in Switzerland. Um, so he is um, he's a top flight mind and he has become uh, possessed of the idea that uh, that consciousness is much bigger and greater and more all-consuming or more all that touches everything in a way that we haven't been giving it credit for. Um, whether you agree with him or not, I think this conversation is is worth a listen because we get into a lot of um, you know implications of that kind of thing and and I just I felt like it was a very human conversation. I felt like there was a lot of vulnerability from himself and myself um, that was kind of next level for the podcast. So um, I'm really excited about this conversation. I hope you like it too. Please like and subscribe. And, and on this one, leave some comments like if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube video of this and not the audio, uh, leave some comments because I, I would love to discuss this with people. So uh, anyway, here's my conversation with Bernardo Castrup. Um, Bernardo Castrup, welcome to Morning Talk Show. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so what I'm interested in, in, in getting into, um, you're one of those people that, uh, as soon as I started hearing you, uh, speak about your ideas and thoughts, um, things begin exploding in my head, um, almost to the point that when I'm watching videos of you, I have to pause you and, and write something down and, and that kind of thing. So <laughs> there's something very compelling. And I'm interested in hopefully um, getting a sense of kind of the story of how it came to be, because uh, I know your story is pretty interesting. And then, um, and then maybe some some kind of uh, the the ways in which your your idealism um, uh, kind of colors your everyday life and changes your everyday life. But first, first of all, can you give a, a quick pitch for those who haven't heard? Um, how it is that you view uh, reality and consciousness. We keep looking for an explanation for consciousness. In our culture, an explanation is a reduction. We try to explain consciousness in terms of something else. My position is consciousness is that in terms of which we explain everything else. But consciousness itself is the ground level of reality, not your consciousness alone, not my consciousness alone, but consciousness as a type, consciousness as a category, is all there is. So I do acknowledge that uh, there is a world out, out there beyond our personal minds, beyond our personal consciousness. Mm. But I think that world is constituted of mental processes, uh, experiences in consciousness at a transpersonal level, which present themselves to us in the form that we call physicality. So for me, consciousness is all there is. Not your alone, not my alone, but as a category of existence, it's all there is. Everything else happens within it as patterns of excitation of it. Right. Can you define the word transpersonal just, just in case? Uh, I think I, I, I'm hoping my audience spans, spans a gap between those who would know what the word transpersonal means and those who don't. So personal would be your consciousness, my consciousness, my, per my girlfriend's consciousness. Transpersonal is that which transcends the personal. So it's a consciousness that is not uh, associated with an individual entity, but a consciousness that spans space. 
um, at that transpersonal level. So a kind of mind at large whose mental processes simply present themselves to us uh, according to the images we see on the screen of perception. The mm. physical world is the extrinsic appearance, is what transpersonal thoughts and emotions look like when observed from our perspective. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting because when you first hear it, I don't know, like, you know, I was raised in a pretty, um, like in a, a, a Christian, uh, conservative Christian culture. And so I think the first, the first little inkling is to be offended. You know what I mean? Uh, like, and I, I'm, I'm not, but uh, you know what I mean? Just like, oh, you're, you're just telling me that, that nothing is real or people probably go down the postmodernist route when they hear what you're saying. So have, have you had people uh, very offended? Yeah, offended, I don't know, but I certainly have had bemused and confused uh, people. Yeah. Look, uh, I'm, I'm far from me to deny the concreteness, the palpability, the reality of the world out there. Things have weight. Things have uh, consistency. They, they endure whether we are looking at them or not. The world out yeah. there is very concrete, very solid. But what is concreteness, solidity? palpability. These are experiences in consciousness. Mm -hmm. So by saying that the world out there is made of consciousness, I'm actually giving validity to the reality, the concreteness of the world. The only thing I am denying is the way materialists define matter, which is mm -hmm. as a completely abstract thing right. uh, uh, that if you give a list of numbers, you've said all there is to be said about it irrespective right. of any qualities. It has no qualities. It's entirely abstract. Right. You can't even really visualize it because yeah. any visualization entails qualities. But if you try to visualize it, you can imagine it as a, a series of vague contours and silhouettes and right. some mathematical equations floating in the air. Right. That's the world of matter, according to materialism. Yeah. And the qualities of concreteness, palpability, solidity, according to materialism, those qualities are generated inside our skull, mm. created by our brain, and they only exist inside our heads. They don't exist out there. And what I'm saying is that, no, no, the world of qualities, of concreteness, palpability, solidity, it's really out there. Yeah. The concreteness is how it presents itself to us. And right. its character is mental because it's in the world of mentality that those real qualities exist, not yeah. in the pure abstraction of materialism. And, and, uh, and in a more spiritual level, we're, we're in some way connected to everything in the world, you know, everything we have a stake in it. it. It almost feels to me like materialism is some kind of um, bizarro Buddhism or something where, <laughs> where, where people will, you know, like hold up a rock or, or put their hand on a tree and, and really try to divorce themselves from that tree in as complete a way as they possibly can. <laughs> and then only then will the tree be real or something. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't think this before, but saying it that way, do you think, do you think there is any level of self-hatred in materialism, like reflected in, in that view, or is that too strong, too far? I don't, I don't think there is self-hatred. I think uh, there is certainly um, um, nuanced, um, although not very subtle, uh, attempt at um, protecting one's own ego and sense of meaning. Um, and I think there is a, a in-your-face attempt to escape from fear and anxiety. 
because mm. um, you see the, the biggest anxiety in the history of humanity has been fear for what you will experience after you die. Mm. In Christian language, uh, am I going to go to hell? Am I going to suffer, mm. suffer after yeah. I die? And this fear has been so dominant for 95% of uh, human history that uh, it has entirely determined how we live our lives. Mm. Now, yeah. for 200 years, since more or less the you know, beginning, maybe even middle of the 19th century, um, we have found a way to, to exercise that demon, to completely control mm. that fear by saying, you will experience nothing after you die. Yeah. All of your problems are coming to an end because there will be nobody there to suffer. Mm. So, you know, however bad your situation is, it will for sure, whether you want it or not, come to an end. And there is nothing to fear because there is no one to feel the fear after you're dead. I mean, right. this is a fantastic coup. It's a psychological yeah. coup of mega proportions. Right. We exercised our biggest fear. So that, that, that's playing a role there. Yeah, uh, yeah that, and that resonates with me. I, I also wonder if there's a sense of... Um, oppressive obligation that comes with meaning, uh, you know, uh, of duty that comes with, uh, with truly being connected and being one with reality that is, I mean, it's, it is overwhelming. I, I have a, I definitely have sympathy, you know, like I've been thinking, kind of reflecting lately on how, how appealing the thought of being nothing is. Um, you know, uh, because if I'm nothing, okay, well, then I can just look around me, pick up the pieces, move on from here, do what presents itself. And there are healthy things that for some people, I feel like it's necessary, especially for those, for those maybe conditioned with a lot of fear and a lot of false or a lot of um, uninternalized obligation through uh, things like religion. I find those are the people who are the most likely to gaze up at the stars and say, isn't it wonderful how insignificant I am, you know, and just revel in that. And I, I can relate to that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, and I guess, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's a, it, look, it, it does give you a moral free ticket, um, which can be very appealing at first, especially for formerly religious people. Um, if you look at um, the most vocal uh, neo-atheists, most vocal militant materialists, yeah. a surprising percentage, more than what you would expect to see given the normal distribution in the, in the general population, a surprising percentage uh, is made of former religious uh, people. And it's almost yeah. like they are out to get ven vengeance on, on their former selves or yes. something. Uh, yeah. It's pretty curious. Uh, I, I think it's, a, I, I actually th uh, think, I've noticed that a lot, a ton actually, because I'm in some kind of nether world between uh, religious and and non-religious and and my friend my friend group spans the two and uh, yeah I've, I have found there's a lot of there's a lot of damaged people but I also think they're taking a religious view they're carrying it forward into their into their atheism as well you know I, I, I don't find that any of them like uh, you know a moral free pass might even be a strong way to put it because I find they're often really moral in fact I, I find they were so disenchanted with um, moral failures within the church, and that's one of the that's one of the reasons that they they wanted to leave. I wasn't really. Yeah, yeah. I think. Look, if you have a, a personality tendency or character trait that makes you predisposed to dogmatism, it will be dogmatic one way or the other. So even yeah. if you you know, if you kill one set of dogmas, you end up landing in another view, but also from yeah. a dogmatic perspective. And you yes. see that a lot. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, the, the moral free pass, um, I think it's there. Uh, there is a book by a um, Nobel Prize winning uh, writer from the Czech Republic called Milan Kundera. He wrote a book, um, was translated. No, he wrote that book in English or French, I forgot. But the English title is um, The Unbearable Likeness of Being. There was even a movie made in the 80s with mm. Daniel Day-Lewis about it. Um, the movie tells the story of the book, but it, it doesn't capture at all the philosophy of the book. Not oh, at okay. all. Oh, um, the philosophy of the book is uh, Kundera tries to explain how some people can live with so few commitments to any moral perspective, to any sense of responsibility, any, any investment, uh, without any investment in anything that has endurance in time. Mm -hmm. so, so disattached from anything that could give us a relationship with eternity, mm. that they, they, they like, they, they float in thin air. Uh, and, and there is a certain freedom um, in that lightness of being. Mm. Um, the price you pay is banality. Life becomes uh, banal and yeah. meaningless. So that same lightness that sort of liberates from fear, anxiety, a sense of responsibility, it also sort of uh, infects anything that could give you profound joy, profound connectedness, right. profound meaning. Um, so you, you sort of free float, you, you go up in the air like a, like a helium balloon, yeah. <laughs> unanchored. Um, and what happened is that um, for most people who are materialists, but are not invested in promoting, defending or creating materialism, um, that, that's a tragedy. It's a, it's a terrible trade-off. Uh, most psychologists mm. uh, will tell you that it's better to suffer with meaning mm. than to not suffer but have no meaning. That's yeah. the most unbearable right. state of being. Yeah. Um, and for most people, that's what they end up with. Right. The, the, the average person on the street who is a materialist because you eat that from your culture, you inherit that from your culture, they, they have to do with a profound sense of meaninglessness, which leads yeah. them to desperate attempts to fill in the gap, like buying right. stuff, consumerism, all kinds of isms. Mm. Um, but the people who are promoting materialism have an egoic investment in that, and mm. they find meaning. And they find meaning through right. what psychologists call, um, it, it's a compensating maneuver of the mm -hmm. ego. Yeah. When you lose one source of meaning, there is some kind of fluid compensation yeah. towards another source. And they get that by perceiving themselves as differentiated, as above the average person, mm. because they are privy to knowledge that the others don't. And they are just dishing out some some crumbs of that bread of knowledge right. to the to the masses. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they're uh, on the front they, lines. They're on they the, front the front lines, lines. Of, of a battle, which is always. I mean, nobody deal. Nobody suffers of, from meaninglessness on the front lines of a battle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They find meaning in extinguishing meaning for everybody else because there is a kind of differentiation in that. There is also um, there are many ways of for people to find meaning, contributing to something that's bigger than yourself. Mm. And some leading edge materialist scientists, typically they are not militants. Real scientists are too busy doing science in order to go and uh, do militant things. Uh, the militants tend to not be scientists at all. They just pretend to be. Um, mm. But the people who are on the leading edge of that, they are not militants, but they are materialists. They find meaning because they are constructing the great work of science that will survive them. So despite this moral and, um, and meaning nihil nihilism, um, uh, they find some other 
precarious yeah. as it may be, a source of meaning for themselves and the, the elite around them. Mm. Um, and then they try to convince the rest of the population that their view is right. But the right. problem is for the rest of the population, there is no alternative source of meaning. Mm. And then you have an escalating uh, pandemic of, uh, of, uh, of depression. Yeah, and I guess it almost throws some more credibility on your theory that um, and it's something I've noticed that we really can't expunge meaning from our minds. We can be haunted by meaning and we can, we can push it down um, or we can, uh, we can disguise it by um, uh, sort of memorizing an ideological stance even, you know, because I, I feel like there are materialists within religions. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know if that's something that resonates with you, but uh, I have known people whose faith was, and, and this, is, this sounds so negative, I, I hate to, to do that, but uh, the, the faith seems to be a set of memorized principles. And so they've kind of, they've got quote unquote meaning. And then, but, but whatever, whatever way we get to materialism, meaning still happens in consciousness because I kind of feel like it's just what consciousness does. If you don't have a source of meaning, then there is no difference whether you will die when you're 95 or right now. Absolutely yeah. no difference. So you might as well go right now. And, and, and many people actually do that. Look, I, I don't have the positions I have because I'm looking for meaning. That's not at all how it went about. I am committed to truth, whatever the price of the truth is. If materialism, if we had good reasons to believe materialism is true, mm. then I think we should bite that bullet and do the mm. best we can under those circumstances. Because mm. what matters to me is what is true. Now, I don't think we have good reasons at all to think that materialism is true. I think it's perhaps the worst metaphysical position on the table today of everything that is vaguely plausible. Materialism is the least uh, mm. of them. Uh, it only, uh, it, it's only the reigning worldview because it has accumulated so much momentum through cultural right. habit that mm. it's difficult to stop that train. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, sorry, having yeah. come, just, just to conclude, having sure, yeah. come to the position I have, because I think it's, the, the one that we have most reason to, to, to adhere to, uh, the most likely to be true. And that's, that's the only reason why I have the position I have, because I think it's the most likely to be true. Having come there for these reasons, truthness, truthfulness, um, I realized that um, it takes from the table that insulation against anxiety that materialism uh, gives you. Because if consciousness is eternal, that means your consciousness, maybe not as a human being, but the core subject within you is eternal. And that leads to what I like to call the, uh, the words escaping, the, the, the vertigo of eternity. Mm. You know, if you glimpse that not only conceptually but if you glimpse that with the core of your being and it's like <gasps> and, yeah. and then you jump out of that and yeah. oh, okay that's the bad news but at the, at least it reinvests people their lives and their world and nature at large with meaning mm. at least that and we know that um, if you have meaning then you can bear anything mm. anything if there is meaning to it yeah I think of I, I think of uh, children uh, and how when people have children, regardless of their thoughts on uh, on any of these deeper issues, they now know that something about their uh, presence is going to extend at least another you know at least another few decades beyond the end of their life, 
And even that little bit, I think, does get through to, to some people. Uh, it's not eternity, but it, it's, it's something. It stretches out and you get a, you get a kind of a, a through a glass darkly glimpse of the continuation of, of the, the presence you had on, on earth. Um, yeah, a child has no conception of the end of consciousness. This is something that is learned through education and culture. That's a good point. Um, so then I, I, I hope we, was hoping we could return to um, CERN and, uh, and, when, and the, your life and, and how I'm interested in uh, where you were when you started to feel a pull towards these ideas, what it felt like and, and what, what the impetus was to, to start moving in this direction. Look, uh, from birth, <laughs> I think I have been a philosopher in the sense and, and th that I know now. I didn't know then because that's all I knew back then. I didn't have a reference to contrast it with. Um, but um, I, I always related to life and the world from a philosophical perspective. Mm. I, I always ask myself the big questions. Mm. I loved to interact with nature. I was blessed uh, to be born in a sort of protected environment in uh, just outside Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, oh, wow. which is a very nature rich area. I haven't been there in two and a half decades, but uh, oh, I still wow. have wonderful memories of my early childhood. Um, and, and, and I remember relating to that nature in a very philosophical way, uh, the way in which you ask, wow, what is this? Mm. Uh, where does this come from? Who am I in relation to this? Where did I come from? Where am I going to go? You know? Yeah. Um, those questions were repressed when I, when I went to university. I went to university very early. I had just turned 17. Oh, um, wow. And I was busy, you know, five years of a master's. And, and then I landed my first job. You know, when I'm, I started on a Monday, I had defended my master's thesis on a, thesis on a Friday. Whoa. And uh, on That's Sunday, I was packed. traveling. And on Monday, I started at CERN in Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Um, wow. and, uh, and yeah, that's the, the world's cathedral of, you know, high energy physics. Um, yeah. there is no more recognizable institution in the world of yeah. science than CERN. I even and I found myself there now, 22 years. Oh, no, but yeah, just before I completed 23. Wow. Um, and then my first day there, my colleagues were telling me, oh, see that guy, that's Carlo Rubia, that's Nobel Prize winner. And then they would point me to all the Nobel Prize winners in the canteen <laughs> during lunch. Wow. Um, so it was a big dream. And um, during those years, I didn't have mind for philosophy. I was learning science. I was doing science. Um, I was working with artificial intelligence, which was a, fan a fantastic thing I always wanted to do. Um, I got my first PhD at, PhD at 26. And then after I after a while, then the, the, those questions began to return because when you're doing artificial intelligence, you know, you are one turn of the corner away from asking the question, what about artificial consciousness? Right. You know, yeah. is, a, is an intelligent computer a conscious computer? And then those yeah. questions all came back. And that's when my actual philosophical trajectory really began. Okay. So you're there at CERN, you're, you're, in, you're in this work and... Uh, presumably there was a pretty big shift in your career then because um, uh, you're not at CERN now. So um, I guess it sounds like maybe those, um, the, the philosophical tendency intensified uh, while you were there. And, and so what did you, what steps did you take? Like, yeah, it, it didn't intensify while, while I was there. I was there in 96 and 97. Okay. 
um, and that there was an enormous sense of mystery at CERN that sort of fulfilled my philosophical needs without I having to address philosophy explicitly. Okay. Because you see, when, you, when you're working around an accelerator like that and you're working, uh, about, you're working on building detectors that explore what's happening in the world uh, at the dimensions that you can't even visualize, dimensions in which an atom is the size of the universe compared to what you're trying to study. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my sense of mystery was, was stimulated every single day. I was in awe of what we were doing there. I thought it was the coolest thing imaginable. I left CERN for a very pragmatic uh, uh, reason. Um, I married. And um, at CERN, uh, only very, very few people have permanent positions uh, at CERN mm. staff. Um, I had a temporary contract like 99, well, nine, at least 95% of people at CERN. Okay. And I married and I thought, you know what, it's been a great adventure here, um, but now I want to be stable. I want to be in, you know, in a place where I have right. a social work and stuff and have a a nice job and I it was um, the beginning of the first internet bubble mm. you know 98 was the beginning of the, the big bubble of the internet and companies were hunting us down at CERN like mm. uh, I don't know we were moods you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a shooting range and we were there and, and, and it was a good feeling and uh, when you were young and you just married and, and you're still ambitious. You don't have a sense for what is really meaningful or not. You're still in that ride, you know, that you go through when you were young without giving it any second thought, without reflecting about it, you just ride the wave. Mm. So I rode that wave and I ended up at Philips Research um, in the Netherlands. Um, and um, I was doing a project on reconfigurable computing. It was a corporate research project that aimed at making money. But it kept me close to those questions of artificial intelligence, reconfigurable co computing. Can I make a computer that reconfigures itself to be conscious? You know, the <laughs> questions were still there. And I got my first PhD. And it was only after all this that, it's, that, I, that I began to realize that I was not re-examining my basic assumptions, which is that consciousness is something that needs to be created in the first place. Mm. Today, I, I think better than that. Today, I, I dare to say, today I know that consciousness is not created. It's that within which all creation happens. Mm. So it's, it's a contradiction in terms to talk about creating consciousness. Right. What we might try to create is a dissociated aspect of consciousness. Abstracted consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So, and, but that really began in my late 20s, early 30s. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So interesting. And I have, I have noticed in, in the, like I've, I've heard from physicists and, uh, and people in artificial intelligence, there is always that kind of tension. I feel like uh, they're at the evaporating point between science and philosophy. You know, when you, when you're examining these questions, you're just, you're on this edge and you mentioned mystery. Um, actually, I love that because, uh, uh, you know, you were, you were, equating um the sort of it seemed like you were equating the beauty of of philosophical life with mystery um or, or you know you were you were fulfilled in some way at cern uh spiritually you didn't say spiritually but uh, yeah uh, by this mystery the, the fact that you were surrounded by mystery and i think that's really important um yeah there is no doubt there is a spiritual dimension 
um, to a lot of people who work at the frontiers of foundations of physics, high energy physics, there certainly is a spiritual dimension. Mm -hmm. if, if you're strict about what is the spiritual dimension of that and what is the purely theoretical, practical dimension of that, you will realize that nobody can live on the purely theoretical side of that mm. because it's pure abstraction. Mm. There is nothing there. Uh, you, you have to feel that abstract framework in with your imagination. And that, by definition, is a spiritual dimension. When you fill mm. in the mystery using your imagination, when you project that onto what you're doing, that's the spiritual dimension. And most passionate physicists are projecting their own spiritual being uh, yeah. onto uh, and into what they do. They, they're filling in that bare bones abstract framework of equations and graphs yeah. uh, with that spiritual dimension. That's what gives them mm. energy. This giving, this projection is what comes back to them in the form of energy, spiritual mm. energy yeah. to be motivated to do what they want to do. Because you see, if you think that we, that we see any subatomic particles at CERN, you don't understand what's going on at CERN. You see right. nothing. Uh, when we talk about having found the Higgs boson, yeah. people imagine that, oh, okay, they, they, they in hunted a... one, they found one, they got it, they saw it, and they sort of yeah. arrested it in some kind of magnetic chamber. There it is. Yeah, and there <laughs> it is. That's the Higgs. And, and no, the, the Higgs boson, you can't even measure it directly. The Higgs boson is a theoretical abstraction that explains the patterns of clicking in mm. instruments. When That's... the instruments click in a certain way, we explain that by inventing this abstract thing we yeah. call the Higgs boson. Oh man, um, the intuition, yeah. the intuition involved is is so uh, inspiring. You know, just the the visualization that all these people are doing based on these Absolutely. minute. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So if, you, if you take the spiritual dimension away, I would tell you the, the objective truth about what happens there. The Higgs, even if it exists, it lives for too short a time to be measured. It yeah. decays into something mm. else. It's trivial. Electrons, jets, right. particles that we all know. That then hits a detector and it produces a, a click in an mm. energy meter, for instance, right. the calorimeter, which is the detector yeah. I was working on. I was working on the data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment calorimeter. Lots of funny words. Yeah. Here. <laughs> oh, we've all done that. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding and, and then that produces a little graph on your computer screen and the graph goes like this it's a decaying asymptote, asymptote. Yeah. but if there a, is a Higgs it goes like look. it has a peak yeah it has a little yeah. look and then you yeah. see that in your computer screen and then you point at that and say hey we found the Higgs because you run some completely abstract abstract yeah. statistics uh, 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 algorithms yeah and you realize that the chance of that being just by chance yeah. is about one in a million so it must be the higgs but what what's the higgs the higgs yeah. is a theoretical invention nobody yeah. sees but it touches it even if it's true it's such that it decays before you can measure it all you see is a graph so would that motivate anybody from about uh, to, to wake up in the morning and go to work of course not so why are they all there why are there three thousand people at cern yeah. working day and night like i did i used to work yeah. until four in the morning sometimes and yeah. i did the the opera um, the so-called uh, night shifts in the accelerator okay. because when you turn the accelerator on it's too expensive and takes too long to turn it turn off it and on and again. So on the accelerator you. is on 24 hours a day. Yeah. And you always have to, to have people there in the control room 
and nobody wanted to be there between midnight and 4 a.m. except yeah. me. <laughs> I swapped shifts with, shifts with everybody to be in the control room. Why did I do that? Why do they do that? Because of little bumps in a graph on a computer screen? Yeah. Because of pure abstraction? No, they do that because they use their imagination to project a whole mysterious spiritual dimension yeah. behind the actual practical objective facts of the matter. Well, they're living by faith. Uh, yes, and, you know, and, you're and living a life of a, faith. Yes, and look, I, I, I don't, yes, and I don't say yes in a demeaning way. Right. I think it's a beautiful way to live your life. I think yeah. it's the only way to live life in a way that does justice yeah. to our situation. We are here yeah. bang in the middle of an unfathomable mystery. It's the only way to do justice to our situation. Yes. Yeah. Faith, faith, not in the sense of dogma. Right. Faith in the dogma sense is of not being faith. open to the mystery. That's yeah. what faith means. Faith uh, yeah. means to be oh. open to the mystery. Yeah, you're you're just singing uh, beautiful music to me, uh, and and I wonder if if this is why. Like sometimes I am curious why there would ever be physicists on Joe Rogan. Like and but there's uh, there's he has a little roster of kind of physicists, and you've got like who, who come on and he'll, he'll just say like, I read your book. I don't really know what it means, but you know, let's talk. And then he'll talk to them for three hours. And I kind of wonder if we're not seeing uh, an outflow of this yearning for faith that, that we just naturally have. And I don't mean religious faith, oh, but these are, these are priests. And, and I, and I don't say that to demean them at all, but they're high priests of, uh, something that actually is giving people that sense of mystery. And, and what comes to mind where, where kind of materialism might then swoop in and kind of kill the, you know, um, you know, the, the William Blake poem, um, he who, um, he who bindeth to himself a joy, doth the winged life destroy. Um, the, the, the materialists want to jump in and say, mystery is something to be eliminated that we're actually searching for some kind of final conclusion so we can close this up so we can lock the door on that control room at CERN and say, all right, um, you know, and, and I know, I don't, I don't think that's even, I don't think that's the actual experience of these scientists because I believe scientists are, are by and large passionate people who are excited about the next question. But there is this, um, it, there's this kind of odd veneer of closing off mysteries. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think most serious, true, practicing scientists um, have a very healthy way to relate to mystery. They know that science, in all likelihood, will never find out the ultimate yeah. truth, nor does it need to. They must have um, that. Yeah, but it, it's the militants. The militants, look, one, one profound source of meaning for people who have lost the spiritual dimension of their lives is closure. We know this from... Uh, um, um, there's a theory in psychology. The name escapes me now. Um, oh, the st stages of grief? No, no. no. It's, um, oh, sorry. Anyway, but uh, uh, closure is an alternative source of meaning. When you've lost relationship mm. with the mystery, when you lost relationship with higher forms of meaning, to get closure is a sort of a, a, re a bad replacement uh, for that. Mm. Like uh, if you're disappointed in life because your life went all wrong and there is no coming back, you know, you cannot recover time lost and it's all piece of crap anyway, you have no meaning. But if you at least understand how it happened, 
then there is some source of meaning. If you, if you lost your son to war, um, mm. uh, yeah. th th that's a tragedy because you lost your continuity in the world. You know, mm. your, your offspring is supposed to give continuity to yeah. you after you die. You lost that. But if you at least know the circumstances uh, under which your son has died, right. if his body has returned home and can be buried and given the, the correct rituals, the, the mm. proper rites, right. then there is closure. Right. You see, this sense of closure is a, is a, is a compensation. It's a, there's a fluid compensation. And, mm. um, and in science, um, it is the specter, the illusion of the final model, the ultimate theory of everything mm. that carries with it this idea that, hey, it's all a piece of crap, but that's the ultimate closure. <laughs> At least we have closure. Yeah. See, wow. we are we are nothing in this universe. We are we we don't matter. Our lives will be forgotten after after mm. one thousand years. It will, it would be as if we didn't exist at all. But at least we understand oh, what's wow. going on down to the down to the <sighs> ultimate detail. So this is psychological. It's fluid that's, compensation. That's uh, it's beautiful. It's what the militants uh, hold on to. It's that sense of meaning, and yeah. that sense of meaning gets heightened if they can convince themselves that. Um, not only have they achieved closure, they are a unique elite club that has managed to, to achieve that closure and they mm. differentiate themselves from the masses. Mm. That's yet another boost to yeah. meaning. So yeah. that's why militants act uh, that way as priests in the bad sense, mm. while true scientists, they are there in, bang in the middle of the mystery every day, mm. feeding the spiritual dimension of that right. mystery through their imagination, through populating the empty contours of abstraction yeah. with the living mystery that, is, yeah. that resides within them and which yeah. they project onto what, uh, what they are doing. And that's the real thing. That's the mm. real mystery. So from that sense, I would say true scientists are spiritual in the positive sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, neo-atheist militants, they're militants, they are just trying to find meaning for themselves at your right. expense and the expense yeah. of the average person on the street by this yeah. kind of uh, pathological fluid compensation. Oh man, this is, this is great. And I feel like there's a lot of really practical stuff in here, like um, just framing closure in the death of a loved one and comparing it to uh, this false sense of closure in a scientific, in scientific discovery. That is, that's really profound, Bernardo. I, I love that. And uh, sorry, uh, sorry, um, I interrupted it's, you. It's, it's, it's right under our noses. And yeah. It's right there to be seen. Yeah, I love it. And, and I think that, I think that it's um, this idea of, of mystery. I've heard a lot of people talk to you. Um, I've watched a lot of interviews. I have a desk job. So um, I listen to, I've been just like the, the deep Bernardo Castrup YouTube dive. And a lot of people, myself included, when they hear, hear your thoughts immediately are, are drawn to the idea that Oh my goodness, in this, I mean, this, in this non-religious guy, because in most, I think you've been a little more um, spiritual sounding in this interview than in a lot of the ones I, I've heard. I mean, it all depends on the questions you're asking all of that, but you're, you're whatever, you're not a, you're not a super religious uh, Bible thumping. Like, I don't really hear you quote the scriptures or anything like that. Um, but people are I, very, I can, but yeah. well, of course, of course. I, I, yeah. I'm not trying to limit you. I'm just saying like, but the people who are talking to you, sometimes I see the light go on and they go, Oh my goodness, this philosophical theory leaves the door open for God, for the existence of God. And that is, that's, um, that's near and dear to my heart because um, I've started to have this um, sense 
that the open door to God is better than the proof of God. You know what I mean? Like that, that um, apologists and those kinds of things for religions are, you know, the winged life destroy, you know, like they, they are, uh, are holding down, you know, it's almost like they're finding the fawn in the forest and tackling it to the ground and holding it up and see, look, look, it, you know, it, it's here, it's here. And, and then, you know, and, and there's something about it that takes away the life of God. And I guess I just wonder if that means anything to you, like what your own thoughts are on, on God, because yeah, the mystery, it, removing the mystery of God, I think is one of the things that maybe has killed the soul of, of religion uh, in a large way. I'm usually careful using the word God because I think yeah. there are seven and a half billion definitions of, of it course. on this planet, if you know what I mean. So if I use the word, uh, each person will hear a different thing. So it's tricky. But if I, if I stick to, to the fundamentals, God as something omniscient, omnipresent, it's everywhere, and um, omnipotent, not in the sense that he's a despot, but in the sense that he's behind the causal chains of nature. That, uh, it, that uh, he, she, it is the impetus uh, behind the unfolding of nature according to causal chains whose regularities we can model according to scientific equations. Mm -hmm. If that's what we are talking about, this broad, relatively vague definition of God, I think uh, the human intuition about the existence of God is overwhelming. It, it has been there throughout history. Uh, yeah. um, could all this be just a collective hallucination? Man, of course not. I mean, it's so widespread. Um, people are sensing, not through their conceptual thinking, but through the intuitive roots of their being, that they are related to a omnipresent mystery. Mm. That, uh, that, uh, that has a direct influence or maybe is even the essence of, of everything that happens. Yeah. Um, and I take this kind, of, this, this kind of extremely widespread intuition seriously because yeah. it, it, it's telling me that uh, there is a sense in the human being that's not conceptual thinking, but there is a sense that's part of us, has always been part of us, uh, some kind of root system in the human being that connects us to some primordial reality at the basis of everything and we've yeah. come up with this word for it we call it uh, god right. and once it comes up to our conceptual thinking then we produce millions or billions of definitions for it and right. then we go to war against each other because uh, you know his definition is different from yeah. mine and then right. the whole thing goes to hell but uh, <laughs> the primary intuition before you dress it with a conceptual narrative that primary intuition i take very seriously i would i would go as far as to say that this is a slam dunk is one of the most self-evident yeah. aspects of reality is that there is that going on. Mm. Um, look, I, I, I was not educated to be religious. Um, I was not educated to be an atheist either. Mm. Um, I had, and I, I'm good. going to use the word liberal in the European sense, in the, in, in, in the US it's a tainted word now, and I, and I don't mean by it what most people will, will, will think of it in the US, but I had an open education. My mother was Catholic, a practicing Catholic, and I was exposed to that. My father was very much a scientist, even though he was an architect by practice. Mm. He consumed science all the time. So I was exposed to scientific thinking. He did his little experiments at home. I was exposed to all that. Neither tried to indoctrinate me. 
Mm. Neither made me feel like I didn't have the freedom to choose. Mm. Neither tried to overwhelm my own proclivities and dispositions. So uh, the times I went to church with my mother were the times that I woke up in the morning and I told her out of my own spontaneous free will, I'd like to go to church with you today. Then I would go. If yeah. I wouldn't see, say anything, I wouldn't go. And that would be the end of it. Mm. So I don't have an ax to grind either way, if you know what I mean. So mm. I, I'm certainly pro-science and I've written a book that is pro-religion, not pro-dogmatism, right. not right. pro-fundamentalism. I think fundamentalism is as much a disservice to religion as atheism, if yeah. not worse. Yeah, uh, but I'm. It, I think it's a type of atheism. To be perfectly honest, it feels having been from that background, it feels like a type of atheism. It feels like putting God in, a, putting the corpse of God in a glass case. Uh, you know what I mean? And and yeah. maybe Nietzsche was getting at that. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, to reduce the mystery, to reduce God to a few moral rules, it's 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 to flatten God to yeah. a point that it's not even a caricature. I mean, I, I think it's a disservice yeah. to to our religious intuitions uh, to adopt a dogmatist view of it. But um, anyway, you would like you would like Mark Vernon's book, A Secret History of Christianity. Um, because it's, it's really like, it, it does a really succinct job. It's a short read of, of um, situating Christ uh, right at the nexus of kind of a natural evolution of human consciousness, kind of framing it within um, where thought had been. Um, and then kind of the, the type of individualism that uh, was percolating in the kind of in the collective unconscious and then kind of crystallized through the, the stories of Christ and the life of Christ. So anyway, you, you would probably like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, th this is, this is just all so great. I do feel like there is, maybe this is just me, but it feels like there is a, um, a spirit of this kind of, of, um, agnostic, um, spiritualism or something that, that, man, I don't want to put a label on what you're saying, but the things you're saying are all so much things that have been percolating in my own mind. And then I'm hearing more and more people say it. There's kind of these people coming online, you know, like, um, I mean, uh, Rupert Sheldrake and, uh, uh, and you've probably heard of him and the guy called John Verveke. Do you know John Verveke? No, Rupert, I know. Uh, yeah, you, um, you know Rupert personally? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, uh, okay, yeah, tell him to come on my show because he's... <laughs> he, uh, he's told me no twice, but that's okay. Um, anyway. Hey. Uh, yeah, I mean, very kindly. He's just so unbelievably busy, and there's a million freaking podcasts uh, <laughs> these days. I have nothing, nothing against him, but man, would I ever hug that guy? But anyway, uh, there's just this thing in the in the collective unconscious that seems to be moving in this direction. We have a sense of need, and there's there's a pragmatism to the way that you're going about it. That's really, um, uh, I really ap appreciate it. There's an openness, and yet it's it's an openness without uh, without vagueness. You know what I mean? Like you're actually attempting to answer answer questions and, and actually have answers to, to them. Uh, which, but, but your theory of things does not take the mystery away because obviously to, to say that this cup is, uh, is a product of consciousness, I could sit and think all day about that. And I, I, I don't even think that you think, you know, in a decade, you're going to be able to tell me exactly how this cup is a product of consciousness. You know what I mean? Like you, you have, you, you have a framework. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean, there's mystery inherent 
Yeah, the cup is a product of consciousness, but not of your consciousness alone. Right. That, that's the point. So the, there yeah. is something mysterious out there that is playing a, an important role in having this cup exist uh, and to be experienced by your consciousness. Yeah. Um, this is going to be strange, but I wonder if I could read uh, a poem, a very, very old poem that uh, this, this morning, I kind of have some things I reflect on before I do an interview sometimes. Lovely. And, uh, and I, it's, I, I, I read poetry, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully, yeah, I would expect you to actually. So have you ever heard one called the Gayatri? By, by whom? Um, it's just ancient. I don't even know if its author is known. So it's a translation. No, it was in a Kate Bush song called Lily. Um, so that's where I first heard it. But, uh, and then I had to look it up because there's music over it and I couldn't quite hear it. So anyway, it, it, it seems to actually say something about what you're doing. And it's, and it's ancient. Like I say, like it's, it's almost authorless and it, and it says, I'll read it. It's, it's not long. Uh, it says, Oh, thou who givest sustenance to the universe from whom all things proceed to whom all things return, unveil to us the face of the true spiritual son hidden by a disc of golden light that we may know the truth and do our whole, our whole duty as we journey to thy sacred feet. And there's something about when I first read that, and I, I, I admit I'm kind of the typical social media, like staring at my phone too much, skimming things, um, you know, superficially kind of absorbing things. And when I read that hidden, the unveiled to us the face of the true spiritual son, hidden by a disc of golden light, that's stopped me. Like it, it stopped me in my tracks and that doesn't happen uh, with poetry. Honestly, I, I sometimes worry that I'm dead inside or something. Um, <laughs> and then, and then I read this and, you know, it, so I, I guess, do you have any kind of, does that seem to resonate with what you're saying? Like Absolutely. the true spiritual son hidden by a disc of golden light. The mystery can only be spoken of in symbolic language, the language of um, um, it's more than metaphor, um, but we could, we could speak of it in, in terms of a metaphor, because the, the real truth of it, we, we don't have words for it. A language has evolved for pragmatic reasons to tell each other where the predator lies hidden, where the good yeah. fruit is to be found. That's, that's what language evolved for, not to yeah. talk about these things. Um, I think the tragedy of our situation in the West, at least, although the Western culture is now permeating the entire world, but the tragedy of our situation as Westerners today is that um, because we are still human beings and we still have our roots connected to the primordial truth from which we derive our very vital energy, when we read something like this or when we hear something like this, we recognize it. Emphasis in the word recognition. Mm. Uh, it's not like we learn or we have a new insight. No, 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 it's not that. It's recognition. It's the words that point to ourselves, something we already knew in the guts uh, mm. of our being, because mm. we are in contact with that all the time. If we were not, we would just blink out of yeah. existence. So we still have that recognition because we are human beings, but because we are Westerners, it has become a cultural maxim in our society today that if you honor that intuition, then you're stupid. Right. That's our tragedy. It's data. That's the tragedy. Yeah. It's data yeah. to be yeah. analyzed. Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting. That's a, an epistemological, the, our epistemology is, is so uh, toxic, I think. 
our, our culture, uh, when yeah. it comes to metaphysics, has become yeah. toxic for reasons that can be historically traced and even right. comprehended. And even relating change. to. Yeah, even relatable. Even rela I agree, even related to. But yeah. it doesn't change the fact that today we are putting ourselves in a condition of tension that it's, it's hardly uh, uh, bearable. Uh, to 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 exist and and that's why you know the 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 the, the pharmacology industry producing drugs to allow us to bear the situation is booming mm. yeah that's why we have an epidemics of depression and, and anxiety yeah, yeah it's it's and our situation further to what you're saying about recognizing and that's that's really that's really important we recognize things they they uh, yeah i also think that it's possible for artists um to more, oh, a kitty. That's, that's fine. You don't have to scare the kitty away. Um, when he wants to, attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got two kids who are trying, I'm trying to get them to watch shows while I do this. So they may end up showing their faces. But anyway, um, yeah. So I, I think it's one of the beautiful things about art is that an artist can also um, be almost like, it's almost like archaeology of, of things they already know or of things that we as a, as a species already know when you you know if you were to write a line like that of poetry that was recognized by others i don't think that you could say you fully created that from nothing you know what i mean because if i'm making something and this this works very well in your theory if i'm making something that someone else intuitively recognizes as something they already knew then how can i take uh, credit as though I big banged that shit from nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, nothing I, is being discovered. There is nothing truly new. What, what is new is the metacognitive recognition of that we already knew, but we didn't know that we knew. Mm, Do, yeah. you understand what I'm trying to hint yeah, at? Yeah. Uh, there is a level in which, at which, or on which, uh, we know it because we are that consciousness at the root of everything. Yeah. Um, manifesting itself as us and others and the world at large. So there is a sense in which everything that there is to be known is known through direct acquaintance, acquaintance through experience. But to have an experience falls short of to know that you have the experience. This, this mm. metacognitive step yeah. in which you sort of realize your own knowledge at a higher level of cognition. Right. I think that's, that's the, the role of life. That, that's the meaning of life. I would go yeah. as far as to say that that's the meaning of life. We are, to speak religious language, which, which I am allowing myself to do with you, given all these disclaimers <laughs> yeah. and caveats that I said yeah. in the beginning. Safe space. Um, we might be the instruments through which God attains metacognitive cognitive awareness of what mm. he she it has known all along yeah but yeah. only through us that realization of oh I, I actually now know that i know this right that is something <laughs> that happens through the struggles of life and suffering is a, is a is a big instrument of that if there were no suffering we would live epicurean lives we'd be having yeah. fun and never give thoughts to the deep questions <laughs> i sometimes wonder if if even that makes things deeper the fact that um our decisions are, are more realizations than decisions like uh when i think about the um deciding to ask my wife to marry me um i uh i had to say and it was one of my first realizations is that i couldn't frame it as a decision uh, i realized that it was what i wanted 
uh, or, or was the path that, you know, that lit up for, for me. And, 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 and rather than taking away, I mean, yes, I guess it takes away a little bit of personal agency in that decision uh, in a way, but um, in that particular context, I think you can, we can see the resonance of, of the importance of that, right? Uh, because um, I, I don't think anybody likes to think that um, a list of pros and cons was sort of tabulated and, and then a decision was made. <laughs> I'm totally with you there. I think I may use my personal agency to decide which mortgage package I would take. Yeah. Or I may use my personal agency to decide which way I would take to work today given the traffic uh, situation. Yeah. Um, but my whole life has not been decided by me as a personal agent. And that's something you only realize late, later on uh, in mm -hmm. hindsight. Yeah. Uh, I, I can trace back now the key junctures of my life, the key choices and decisions. And I can tell you with my hand in my heart, in absolute honesty, I had nothing to do with that. Wow. Uh, uh, me as an individual yeah. narrative in my head, me as an ego, yeah. an agent separate from whatever it is that's manifesting itself yeah. through me, decided very little. And I think the key struggle of life is, do you surrender to that? Right. Will you let it happen through yeah. you with faith. Yeah. And what's faith in the sense? It's trust in the mystery. Trust it. Oh my trust goodness. the mystery. Or uh, will you oppose it and you yeah. will fight against it? And then life is a living nightmare. I, I have made, I mean, every, every important decision in my life. I have left a career of 25 years three months ago. Mm. Uh, a career in which I knew how to make a buckload of money with one hand tied behind my back and a finger inside my nose, as I say in the <laughs> Netherlands, two fingers in your nose, um, uh, in which I felt absolutely comfortable, safe, a world, I, I used to work in high technology strategy, a, a world in which everybody knew, be, knew me by name. Mm. Um, and I left that. Was it the decision of my personal agency? No, my personal agency resisted that for five years. Mm until we got to a point where the suffering was so great that I, yeah. I said, okay, let's go again. Let whatever it is that wants to manifest in the world through me have free reign because yeah. ultimately I think uh, free will, I think free will in the sense of my free will as an individual agent, I think that's a red herring. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, whatever there is, whatever truth there is to it, I think it boils down to this. Do you choose to resist or do you choose to go along with that more yeah. primary principle uh, wow. uh, that flows through you, which ultimately you are. So I wouldn't yeah. portray this as being a slave to that, although, you know, in the Socratean terminology, you have a daimon, which is not you, but needs you to do his bidding. Mm. And then there is a sort of a, it sounds like <laughs> right. a slave, slave yeah. master relationship. No, I get it. You could look at it that way, but I prefer to look at it as my sense of personal identity is a hallucination. It's a mistaken yeah. narrative. What mm. I really am is that thing that, that has no fear, knows exactly what he needs to do, what needs to be accomplished in the world through his action mm. or with the help of his action, has no personal agenda whatsoever, is mm. not the least interested in personal gain, fortune, success, none of that. He has a mission and he's out to do that. My individual free will, I boil down to this. Do I, do I allow him to operate through me or do I resist? If mm. I resist, he will win at the end anyway, mm. or not. But then <laughs> I know yeah, I, I, you can, I you will can, burn up. 
you're delaying the work or you're you're creating unnecessary i i remember i remember when i was trying to live a life of um uh of the the faith i was given uh i i remember a general sense and it was only in the last five years that this began to clear a general sense of confusion that went far beyond uh in thoughts of of faith or or the Bible or God, uh, it was a general sense of confusion and and, and fogginess, and and uh, I I feel there was a point, and I hate to say this because it sounds like I, I really don't like claiming enlighten anyone claiming, you know, enlightenment or to be non. I am now non-dual. What? You, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you crossed the you I crossed the border a... over into being non-dual. That's so unbelievably dual. But yeah, anyway, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so I'm not saying that, but there was a moment where I think I heard something and listened to it and and started to move and and it's the clarity that comes, uh, even in in fits and starts. It, you yeah. know, it's something to appreciate. And I I'm I mean I'm very um, pleased for you and and. Uh, and happy for you that you did that. So congratulations on leaving your it, job. It's look, it's an ongoing process. Leaving my job is one thing. There have been many other things uh, mm-hmm. throughout the course of my life that have brought me to where I am. None of them was my deliberate egoic mm-hmm. decision. Yeah. Um, uh, what I wanted to say, um, it's, a con- it's a continuous surrendering. Um, that's how it feels to me. And it's not like... You- you arrive at some point and then, okay, now you're enlightened. For, for me, it's a cycle. Um, pressure builds up. Eventually, you surrender to, what, to that which wants to manifest in the world through you. You surrender to that despite all of your fears, insecurities, anxieties, all that you surrender to that. And then it happens. And then you start trying to reassert your egoic uh, anxieties and volition. Yeah. And then, and then the cycle repeats. There has to be a new surrender. Every few yeah. years, there's a new yeah. surrender. When I look back um, to, the, to the, you know, the footprints that I left behind me, it has been this cycle of continuous mm. surrendering. And, and, you know, we were talking about um, militant, uh, self-appointed militant spokespeople of science achieving meaning through this sense of closure. Uh, in which I don't, they, they lost the mystery, they lost the true meaning, but at least they, they think, they hallucinate a sense of closure. The same thing happens in religion. That's when it becomes uh, dogmatic because the, 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 the dogmatists or the fundamentalists in religion, they think they've solved the mystery. They think mm. they have all the answers. It's there, there is a code, you have to live literally by it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's it, that's all there yeah. is to it. I mean, th- this is the same reaction against meaninglessness and insecurity that you see in science. Why? Because we are all human beings. We are all <laughs> playing up humanness in different yeah. ways. Uh, oh. um, so for, for, for the dogmatic uh, fundamentalist, uh, the sense of closure has come to replace that more open but uncertain, difficult, uh, anxiety-ridden relationship yeah. with the mystery. Yeah. Uh, and that relationship is necessarily anxiety-ridden for, for the ego yeah. because the ego is facing something that's so much bigger and more powerful yeah. that you can never have a sense that you're in control. I you have... cannot have that. So if you need that, you have to flatten the mystery into a cartoon. Yeah. And, and then tell yourself, now I have closure. Now I know how to live and not to live. So yeah. I end up in, parad- in, in heaven, not in hell. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I, it's the yeah. same story. It's so good. I have, I have some thoughts. Uh, one of them that just came to mind is that actually the, the Muslim uh, practice of not drawing, um, not drawing a God 
or not drawing a lot or uh, is uh, is is kind of neat in that way actually it, it kind of has a new resonance in the light of what you're saying here that's the that was one thing that came to mind and then the other thing is just how um what you're describing is kind of a redemption of determinism because i think one of the reasons that um determinism is this uh be in the bonnet of a lot of people um you know the sense that we have no no free will no choice is that there is a part of it that we kind of intuit is true you know, uh, and, and, it, and it bothers us to no end because we really, like we, we, we get such a sense of purpose from the agency and the decisions that we've made and, the, and the, the narrative that's been created of our lives. And what you're describing is kind of this beautiful, open-handed, um, like faith-based, uh, not in a religious sense, um, version of determinism in which um, life is this beautiful collaboration uh, and, and then there's this sense, and I don't, I, I'm absolutely positive you've had this feeling before, and I've had it a few times, I've been fortunate enough, I try to stop and mark it in my mind, is that when things start to feel um, up in the air again, when things in life start to feel undefined, undetermined, um, there's the anxiety, and then right behind it, there's this little sense of anticipation, almost like when you're rounding the top of an of a roller coaster and and you and so you can hang on to that and say you're actually now looking forward to whatever's beyond this disillusion that is a natural part of the cycles of life does that well i'll, I'll confess to you i never look forward to the next surrender <laughs> it's always a very difficult process right, right. it imbues my life okay. with meaning because now i can look back and think well i'm so happy all yeah. that has happened, not mm -hmm. because of me, but despite me, yeah. uh, that, that either um, that force was stronger than me and I lost the fight or that I surrendered it and then suffered yeah. a little less yeah. or the same result. So it imbues my life with meaning, but I never look forward to the next round. Every round right. is <laughs> dreadfully painful. Uh, the level of anxiety and insecurity that, uh, that comes with it, it can, can be mind-boggling sometimes. Yeah. But I don't want to overemphasize, I have a relatively easy life compared to others. So right, I, I but no, really but we're talking about that, your own experience. Yeah, we're not talking, yeah. yeah, you're not making it this objective, you know. No, this. no, it's, a, it's just about me. Yeah. Um, but I think the word determinism has gotten a very bad press because the, there is something dreadful that we associate with the word determinism, but it's not really determinism. What is dreadful there, what is flattening, confining, and claustrophobic is mechanicism, not mm. determinism. Um, every choice I make, uh, whether it's egoic or through my diamond, whatever, um, it is determined by a will. It is determined by a preference, by an emotion, by a sense of mission, by a sense of responsibility, by a sense of moral. It is determined, but it's not mechanic. There mm. is feeling coursing through that determination. Um, if you say that determinism is untrue, then what you're saying is that everything is random. And right. randomness is also claustrophobic. Everything yeah. is meaningless. It could right. be anything else. There is no point to anything. And that's not what we mean when we, when we say we don't like determinism. So what we don't like is mechanicism, mm. or when choices are made through uh, mechanical rules, like billiard mm. balls on a billiard table. 
Um, but determinism is not confined to mechanicism. Determinism, it means that what happens is determined by something, and that something can be a will, can be a sense yeah. of purpose, can be a okay. cosmic telos, yeah. can be yeah. a preference, can be a desire, can be a fear, and, and it can be anything. And if, so, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Determinism has got an unfair bad press, I think, mm. because what people mean by it is mechanicism. Right. And that it's fair enough to say that mechanicism, it's a very flattened uh, one dimensional yeah. view of reality. Right. Well, I can definitely say that a big part of my uh, personal journey has been releasing that sense of having hewn myself from stone. Um, you know, um, I, I don't want to think I'm a, an amoeba or jelly on the floor, but uh, at least at least releasing that notion has been important for me and, and clearly for you as well. But for me, if you ask me, am I a mechanicist? Absolutely not. Um, but do I think that uh, the happenings in my life have been determined as opposed to random? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and they have not been determined by my, by my personal self. As I told you, my whole life has been this cyclic fight against fate, <laughs> so to say. <laughs> Um, but that force that I every now and then have to surrender to is not random. It, it, that force, and I feel it because it's coursing through me. As it courses through me, I make direct acquaintance with it. It's mm. not me, but I make direct acquaintance with it mm. because it's flowing through me. And, and that acquaintance, acquaintance informs me that that force has a tremendous sense of purpose. Mm not choosing randomly it is choosing not metacognitively but very precisely according to a telos mm. according to a goal it has yeah. a very precise sense of a direction yeah. of what must happen next so mm. it is determined and it's not determined by my personal self mm. but it isn't random it's mm. meaningful yeah. It's imbued with meaning and, and, mm. and, and you can get acquainted with that meaning flowing through you, even in the most painful moments of your life, perhaps yeah. particularly in those. I, I had from a... that sense, that, 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 that's a great thing in Christianity, huh? um, that it can be looked at with bad eyes or good eyes. With bad eyes, you would say Christianity has reified pain and suffering and inferiority. That's Nietzsche's perspective, that mm. Christianity is against life because it sort of reifies uh, weakness. Mm. Uh, um, but you could sh uh, shed a different light on that same thing and say Christianity makes clear the meaning imbued in suffering. Mm. And it makes clear that even when you're not on top, even when you're below, even when you're lost, even when you're being stepped upon, even when, uh, <laughs> I'm going to use this word metaphorically, even when the devil is washing the floor right. with you, there is meaning in that. And I think yeah. that's one of the big things in Christianity. In Islam, there is another big thing, equally fantastic, equally important. Even the name Islam means surrender. Mm. Uh, um, and what does a true devout mu uh, Muslim do? He surrenders to God five times a day. He surrenders mm. to the higher power that's trying to enter the, wor the world through him, that's trying to manifest in the world, in, in the world through him. He surrenders mm. his own egoic preferences yeah. and petty wishes and fears. He surrenders to mm. that bigger thing, which has a purpose. Yeah. Five times a day. Wow. 
That's amazing. Yeah. I take my That's hat so off good. to that. Yeah. yeah, I had a Muslim uh, a Muslim guy on the show from a channel called Rational Religion. Another you'd you'd probably really enjoy talking to them as well. Philosophical Muslim guys, really great. But um, it, as you're saying that, a story came to my mind. You said the devil washing the floor with you, and uh, I had an experience. I mean, I'll be vulnerable for a minute. Um, I, I had an experience where I exploded in anger um, at uh, my children, one of my children, and. Um, and the pain, like the this internal suffering that comes from expressing anger towards a child, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't punch him or anything. But I, I was really clearly angry and kind of scared him. And and uh, and then uh, I I went away, and I was rolling. You said the devil washing the floor with you. I was rolling on the floor in my home, in anguish. Like this doesn't happen to me a lot. And and, uh, and in that moment, um this uh this separate view of myself not literally but in my mind another little voice came in and said this is you will learn from this this is something this suffering uh you know take this with you and 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 let it let it shape you kind of thing i mean it probably wasn't as profound as that but i saw me i saw me there and i had I had sympathy for me, but not sympathy in that in an excusing way, just like, oh, look at that guy on the floor. <laughs> you know, look at that guy weeping on the floor. And uh, and, and I think that's kind of, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, the story came as you were speaking, so I don't have a really profound way to directly link it to what you were saying other than that. It's I this can... consciousness viewing consciousness and <laughs> it's the suffering, the meaning of suffering. And uh, when suffering has meaning, um, you know, I wouldn't take any of that suffering away now. I wouldn't go back and, and erase it. Um, yeah. I can relate completely with that. It has been uh, with me most of my life, this, this dissociation that you, that you describe, uh, the you who suffers and the you who is outside observing the suffering and in a much more, there's this Dutch word, uh, in a, with much more perspective mm, over, than over, the one overview. suffering. And, yeah. And, yeah, this, this separate part of you who has the context mm. and who knows how to pass a value judgment to that suffering, given that much broader context. I mean, the first time I experienced it, it was very visceral. I was very close to my father as a kid, and my father, my father died when I was 12 years old, and I was not mm. close to my mother at all. So for me, that's like your world is over. It's like somebody pulled the solid ground from underneath your feet and you're in free fall. I can't imagine. And in those throes of absolute despair, I had this too. The one suffering and the one outside observing with a, an awareness of where I was at that moment in a broader context, where things were going, why they were like that, why that happened, what that would lead to, but a much, much broader context, not a year or two later. No, I'm talking about a much broader context. And that has been palpable to me uh, uh, my whole life, this second self. I call him mm. the diamond. Jung called him personality number two. Everybody, sure. everybody yeah. can relate to that. Yeah, um, I call it the observer, but that's just me. Yeah. yeah, the observer has context. So he is not purely an observer. That's what I, I sense because Fair he's enough. flowing through me. So I, I am acquainted with his sure. inner life as well, although he's not really me, Bernardo Castro. 
Um, the most recent, um, I, I, I don't have any problem making myself vulnerable, by the way. It's been a few years since I had a problem with that. Oh, good. Um, the most recent uh, moment for me was um, beginning of last year, so almost two years ago, when I had, um, I had an accident. Um, I was already suffering from tinnitus for seven years, you know, this buzzing yeah. in the ears. Um, so for seven years, I already had that because of an ear infection I had had years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it was not extreme. Yeah, I was on the average. Um, and then I had an accident with my alarm system. It, it went off in front of my face for 10 seconds before I could pull the yank, yank, uh, yank the batteries out. And that left me with the extreme tinnitus. Um, I constantly hear, you know, a dentist's drill when you're doing dental work. And, uh. So I have one in each ear, like three meters distance. Uh, day and night, uh, 24 hours a day. There's nothing you can do to stop. Still, it. yeah, it's a little better now. But yeah, yeah, I live with oh, wow. it both ears. When I put My the headset headset yeah. on to do an interview, I hear it uh, uh, a lot because oh, uh, then you close the outside sounds that uh, distract you. But when that accident happened and I realized what tinnitus could be, and I went to my doctor, and my doctor told me, "There is nothing we can do about it. It will not kill you." But uh, we cannot do anything about it. The only thing we do is they have a psychology, psychological treatment to allow you to accept it, to sort of make peace with it. But um, life becomes constant torture. It's the last thing you hear before you fall asleep. It's the first thing you hear when you wake up. And it doesn't matter whether you're okay or whether you are having all kinds of problems. And the last thing you need is two dentist drills inside your head. It's still there. <laughs> you know, it's it's not even Chinese torture because it's much worse than Chinese torture. Like the water torture. Yeah, it's much worse than yeah. water torture because 10 seconds of it would already make you go like, oh, stop it. Because that's how I felt in the beginning. Now it's part of my life. I have been living with it for almost two years. But um, I, I had basically decided to commit suicide twice uh, uh, early last year. Um, for a period of half an hour, twice. I thought, um, no, this, I wrote my books, I lived my life, I lived many lives, and I don't need this, I just don't need this, I, I, I don't feel like, and you know, I'm an idealist, I, I, I'm pretty convinced my consciousness will not, will not end, even though my personal agency will, so I'm like, no, how much worse can it be, it cannot be worse <laughs> than this. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I, I don't know why my response no, no, was to okay, laugh. I'm, okay. I'm very much with you on this story. <laughs> I, I laugh of myself. Okay. Um, but th these are moments that change you forever because you know that at that moment you were ready to give up on everything. So everything becomes relative after that. When you think, well, I'm not going to make this decision because I have something to lose. And you go like, well, I was totally ready to lose everything. <laughs> not so long ago. Right. Twice. Oh, interesting. Twice. And, and I am a scientist. I would know pretty well how to kill myself painlessly and very yeah. quickly. You're a so, researcher. You'd figure it out. I, I know. I, oh. I'm not going to tell. Okay, <laughs> no, no, no. I know. Yeah. Um, so it changes your life. And I can tell you now in hindsight, had that not happened, had not that um, milestone of suffering, um, which nobody else can relate to because nobody can hear what you're hearing. Right. So for the rest of the world, you have a great life. You live in a beautiful house. You have a beautiful yeah. girlfriend, three cats, you know, money in the bank. So people are like, what are you talking about? They can't hear the torture yeah. you are going right. through day and night and you can't 
pull the plug. Yeah. I mean, you can, but you pull the plug only once and you can't plug it, pl plug it back in. Um, yeah. If it were not for that, for that experience, having weakened my sense of personal agency so much, uh, I would not have left my job and started Essentia mm. Foundation. Mm. And Essentia Foundation, Foundation has hardly started. We will go public in January next year. But I, there is this other guy <laughs> observing it all. Since the day I had that accident, and the accident was my own stupidity, I yanked a siren out of the wall knowing full well that it had a safety feature, mm. that I had to go to the computer first. But I thought I would just yank oh. it, it out and pull the batteries. No, it takes a while to pull the batteries. So I did that. Something in me did that. And it was not my, my ego self. It was not my personal self. Because my personal self wanted to end it all after that. So it, yeah. why would I want to put myself through that kind of suffering? But something in me did. And it did. You might think, well, I'm over-interpreting this. Maybe, but that's how I sincerely relate to it. Mm -hmm. That part of me did it because that part of me knew if I, had, if I wouldn't be weakened to that extent to let go of my perceived sense, sense of security, to my perceived sense of identity after 25 years in the high-tech world, corporate world, uh, I wouldn't do what I just did. Mm. I wouldn't just, just leave all that behind and start a That's... completely new life yeah. in a completely different direction. Right. And, that, and that guy, that neutral guy that you described, yeah. although Essentia has just started, he seems to know Essentia will be a good thing, mm. a big thing. Yeah. Um, and for him, it, it won't be. For him, it already is in another level. Right. It yeah. already is. Oh, that's do, neat. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Amazingly, amazingly enough, my tinnitus is a lot better. I huh. hear it. And then, yeah. you know, my doctor says, well, it's, it's not better. It's just that you're used to it. So your brain sort right, of filters sure. it. <clears throat> Maybe, but it's, you know, it's the same doctor yeah. who told me, well, in the Netherlands, uh, tinnitus at this level is legal reason for you to get assisted suicide if you oh, want. And I remember thinking, I don't need it. I know pretty well how to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's the same guy who... Wow. Gives you no hope. Wow. Um, uh, and now I am pr pretty convinced it's much better now. It's tolerable. There yeah. are days yeah. I don't think about it until I go to bed. Well, it's all about your experience of it, right? So even if it's not, I mean, there's no, even if objectively it's the same, it doesn't matter if you're suffering less because of it or something, but maybe yeah, it is yeah. less. And um, in conclusion, if you ask me, is all this because of my free will? Of course not <laughs> my free will would be such that i would never have done have, have yeah. done that to myself <laughs> if i had it my way i would still be making my money with one arm tied behind my bed doing something i had my bed yeah. doing something i had a lot of fun with yeah. which is technology strategy uh, in absolute security and going on mm. holidays three times a year to some beautiful destination that's what <laughs> i would be doing man. but no that's not how my life is lived i don't have the free will to decide where my life's going uh, what i do have free will for is to be in peace with it to mm. accept it and say fine may your will be done not mine <laughs> wow okay that is so i mean i just i just love all of this so much and i could i could go on forever but i, I like to uh, sometimes i feel that a conversation has reached kind of a 
a, a, a great uh, jumping off, a great jumping off point. And so, I mean, I celebrate that you've gone through these experiences. I celebrate your new thing. What do you call it? Essential? Essentia Foundation. Essentia. It's, uh, it's a philosophy foundation. We will be promoting mm -hmm. some uh, very well um, substantiated and grounded ideas in philosophy, neuroscience mm -hmm. of consciousness and foundations of physics. Um, but ideas that are hardly reaching the wider public. So we want to play a role there. Man, yeah, that sounds so good. I mean, I would, uh, that, that sounds like something I would uh, uh, absolutely love to be involved in. So I, I'll, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Oh, I'll um, let you know. And, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's uh, selfishly, I would just, that, that's the kind of, one of the things I was planning to ask you, but I'm not going to now is, is kind of how, how we get, how, how we get uh, from, philosophical conversations to, to kind of change, you know, actually helping people with some of this stuff, not divorced from reality. And I, I think um, you have a lot of conversations on, with people such as myself, which you're so gracious to do because it, it clearly takes a, a lot of your time. And I think there, I think these are important. Um, and especially the way that you're capable of sharing yourself in those, like really sharing yourself. It's not an academic thing. <laughs> no, philosophy you know, for me is lived. It's yeah, it has, to, it has to be. And I think it's been too academic for too long. So I celebrate you. I've loved this conversation. And, and um, I think we'll end it there. And, and thank you so much, Bernardo, for being on. Thanks for point. having me, Naron. It's been a lot of fun. I didn't even see the time pass. Yeah, this is one of the longer episodes. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, it just, yeah. Uh, well, maybe, maybe someday uh, we can speak again. I, I would love to, sure. I would love to, uh, to do that. This has been unbelievably inspiring. And I, I, would, I would also want to say that uh, the things you have said have been a perfect encapsulation of, of where I would hope that, that the idea of faith will go, where I would hope that the idea of God will go. Um, and, and, uh, and, and you're, you're, you're living it and showing it. So anyway, thank, thank you very you, much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Take care.